Good morning again, Randall. It's good to be here. It's great to see our kids singing and praising the Lord. It's good to have the kids in the, in the room this morning as well. We're going to have a good time. If you would, stand with me. We do two things in an Easter context before we approach the text. One thing we do is we stand. It's a way of distinguishing my words or somebody else's words with the text. Number two, we recommit ourselves to God in the form of a prayer. So kids, if you haven't done this before, we say it and it's done with passion. So we've got a lot of young ones and I want to hear some passion. So I'm going to say the prayer. It comes from Deuteronomy 6 and then you say it back to me. Here we go. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. These are the very words of God. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. 2 Samuel 7, in verse 1. After King David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up from Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all of the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make you great, your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands." But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me ask, have you ever been tickled to the point where you couldn't breathe anymore? Has this ever happened to you? Kids, have you ever been tickled maybe by a sibling or maybe you were the one doing the tickling to your sibling and you, it was so bad that they like were gasping for breath, right? Tickling, it seems to always start off fun, right? Ooh, let's tickle, we're going to tickle. And it always ends horribly, right? Because it, you get, it just 
for some reason, when you tickle, you just can't stop yourself and you just go harder and harder until the person's just like, stop, I can't breathe. My wife, Molly, she has three older, three brothers, two older than her, and she tells stories about her brothers tickling her that I just want to give her a hug afterwards. I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I'm just, I, want to, I just want to comfort you and say it's going to be okay because they were, they were brutal to her. Tickling, like it said, it always starts off fun. It always ends bad. When I'm, when I'm playing with my kids and I'm wrestling with them, I'm tickling, particularly Mia, I'm tickling my daughter Mia. Uh, again, it will start off fun and she'll laugh and ha ha ha. And then it gets to a point where she's like, okay, I'm done. And she'll let me know. She will squeal and say, stop, stop, stop. And usually I back off. Usually I back off. But what's interesting is afterwards, after we're done, if I sit next to her, if I sit close to her, if I get too close to her after one of these tickle sessions, you can feel her little body tense up. She's anticipating the next attack. I, I might put my arm around her, I might put my hand on her, on her knee, and you'll just see, you can feel it. You, she just like kind of uh, goes into this like little ball because she just anticipates the, the next round is about to come. And so when she tenses up, when I feel like that, and I feel like, okay, she's had enough, she needs to relax, I will say to her, Mia, I promise I won't tickle you anymore. I promise I won't tickle you anymore. And when I say that, I never break that promise. When I use the P word, when I say, Mia, I promise I will not tickle you anymore, you can feel her little body begin to relax because she trusts in the promises of her father. She actually eases up. You can physically see a rest come over her in the promises of her father. You see, promises of a father are pretty powerful. When a dad says, I promise I'll be at your game. I promise I'll play trains with you. I promise not to tickle you anymore. There is a power in the promises of a father. If he keeps them, and if he holds fast to them and he doesn't waver for them, there is this ease from the children, an ease of the promises of a father. Now, in our narrative today that we just read, we're going to see that Father God promises his son David two major things. He makes two promises, and there's going to be some additional descriptions of those promises, but when you look at it, there's really two major promises. And he asks David to rest, because David's got all these plans. He's got all these things he wants to do. And in the me in, in, in undercutting that, God says, no, no, I want to promise you two things. And he asks David to find rest and ease in the promises of the Father. And as we begin to dig, we'll discover that they are our promises too. So let's get at it. We're in a series called The Long Story Short, and we have been taking you through the overarching story of the Bible. And in the next 30 minutes, I need to take you from the Israelites' entrance into the Promised Land until the end of the Old Testament. That's what we're doing today. Just to give you a little visual, I need to take you this far in the Bible in 30 minutes. So get ready. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do it as best we can. But one thing that we've sort of centered on and sort of like signposts we've been setting up to help tell this story is this concept called covenant. And we've been centering a lot of our descriptions on this word and on this concept and with good reason. Because God cutting covenants with his people to establish his promises for the world 
is one of, if not the central theme of the Bible. God taking a, a promised people and placing them in a promised land and making promises to them in the form of covenants in order for his whole mission of the world to be accomplished. And so we're going to try to just kind of give you a recap here. Because in Genesis 3, we looked at the Adamic covenant a few weeks back, where God promises Adam and Eve that while in life their enemies would bruise their heel, that somebody down the line would come to crush the serpent's head. And God establishes a covenant with Adam on that day to say one day the crusher of snake heads would come. And then nine chapters later, we looked at the Abrahamic covenant where God promises Abraham that even though he would fail in keeping his end of the bargain, that somebody, an offspring, someone down the line would come who would pass between the pieces. A few weeks ago, Milo looked at Exodus 19 and touched on the Mosaic covenant where God promises Moses that his people would be a special people and live differently in the world. It was to show all peoples of the earth what God was like through this promised, chosen, covenantal people. And then later in Deuteronomy, Moses speaks of a prophet among the people, an offspring of their line that would come and fulfill everything that they're doing. And then finally, last week, Milo told us a story about these special people entering the land God had promised them walking around cities, blowing their trumpets as he was close to his heart, blowing the trumpets around and establishing a presence and establishing a place and a land of their own. God told them to be strong and courageous, to drive out the enemies from the land. And while they started off well, they eventually became like everybody else. They worshiped like them. They acted like them. They demanded a king like them. And while God wanted to be their king, he gave them what they wanted. And so our text talks about the fact that he made a man named Saul their king. And just like the people, Saul only got worse and worse. He was foolish. He was cowardly. He was jealous, a murderer, consulted mediums, and eventually he took his own life. And that's when God decided to step in. God's special people needed a restart. They needed to see a better way and a better king than Saul. He needed to reestablish the line and the lineage of the offspring, the crusher of heads, the passer of the pieces, the prophet that is to come. And so God chooses David. And he raises up David and he says, David, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a promise to you. In fact, I'm going to make two promises to you as a way to show the people, to restart, to kick this thing back off. And to point people to you to say, this is the line, this is the lineage, this is the offspring for which my chosen Messiah would come. Now, as a backdrop to our passage this morning, because again, our passage says at the beginning that David has already rested from many of his enemies. He's sort of living uh, in, a, in a nice, restful state here. So really what you could say, kids, is that David had been kicking butt at this king thing. He's been doing a really good job with this king thing. He's cleaning up Saul's messes. He's putting Israel back together. He's establishing the name of the Lord again in the midst of this. So he feels pretty good. He's reading into it. He's free to it. In fact, there's a part of the story right before our story in which one of Saul's daughters is still kind of angry at David. She's kind of still loyal to Saul, and so she kind of gives him some sass. 
And he like completely sticks it to her and like just totally puts her in her place. You should read it uh, on your own time. It's really a fascinating story of just this little interchange that he has with one of Saul's uh, kind of snotty daughters. It's really, it's really great. God, David is establishing himself here. He is the new king, and he, God is going to point people to him as the way, the line, and the sort of penultimate king for which the ultimate king would come. So again, it says in verse 1 of our story, the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord gave him rest from all his enemies around him. David looks around his palace, made of the finest wood, and says, you know what? I'm sitting here in a house, and it's a pretty nice house. Let's make God a house. God had been traveling in this, in this tent, in this uh, tabernacle, on the move, in the desert for many, many years. And finally, God, David has established himself. He's built his house. He's re-kind of connected himself to Jerusalem and the palace. And he says, all right, it's time for God to have a house. It's time for God to find his forever home, if you've watched HGTV at all. He's, they're looking for their, his forever home. And it seems like in the text that God is not interested in home ownership. How many of you own homes out there? We got a lot of people own homes. I, I, I'm like year anniversary of owning a home. And I'll tell you, I enjoy owning a home. But it's really nice when your oven breaks and you just call the landlord and say, fix it. Right? When the oven breaks now, I, I, Molly calls me. <laughs> I'm the landlord. I have, to, I have to fix it. And in some ways it feels like God is saying, listen, I'm not interested. I'm still on the move here. We're not done. This story isn't over. I can't, I'm, I'm kind of setting things up. I'm not looking to settle down right now. I'm not interested in a house. I've still got things to do. So he lets David in onto his plan. Because at this point, David hasn't fully grasped. He knows that God has chosen him. He knows that God has chosen him for a special purpose. But he still hasn't truly understand what's going on. And so David says, hey, let's build a house. And God says, I want to do something different here. And so let's cut a covenant. Now this narrative uh, takes out all of the... Um, the cutting of animals and blood and things like that. In fact, uh, they, they, uh, I was asked by the, the, the slide folks upstairs, like, do we have to show any more of those uh, pictures anymore today? Or we're doing another covenant. And I said, no, no, we're, we're good. No, no uh, bloody of pictures today. They skipped that part of it. But we know it's a covenant because they actually follow the same structure that a, a covenant in those days would follow. And I want to point that out really quick here for you. So here's a very typical covenant structure back in, in, the, in the kind of second millennia uh, that this was written in. First off, in any covenant, you would find a title. Someone who presents himself as, here's the one establishing the covenant. We find that in verse 8. This is what the Lord says. Very typical, very, uh, uh, very common for, an, for a covenantal structure. Number two, there's what's called a historical prologue. The historical prologue is a narrative that the, the greater party tells that kind of reminds the lesser party everything he's done for him. It's like, before I get to like what I'm asking of you and what I'm promising of you, like, let's just remember here what it is that bound us together. Let's remember the grace that I've extended. And so a historical prologue really shows us the grace of the greater party and what he has already done for the person before the covenant is established. And we find that historical prologue in the second part of verse 8. It says this, The Lord says, I took you from the pasture. 
Remember, David, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. So whatever David is asked to do of God, it always comes after what God has already done for David. And that's critical. Anything in a covenant, anything that God asks of us to do first always comes after grace that God has given us beforehand without any strings attached. I took you from the pastures, David. I walked with you. I made you king, and I pushed all enemies out ahead of you. So now, as we've established this, here's what I'm going to do. But here's where it shifts, because usually in a covenantal structure, then the demands happen. I've done this for you. Now, quit pro quo. Here's what you're going to do for me. But God doesn't do that here. God actually tells David what God's going to do for him in the form of these two promises. This would have been startling to a Old Testament reader or someone from that day who had read it because they would have expected this point. That's all right, here comes the hammer. He gave the historical prologue. He gave everything that he did for him and now, and here's what you're going to do for me. And instead, God flips the switch. and said, I've done this for you. Now here's what I'm also going to do for you as a way of accomplishing my purpose. And so he makes these two promises I want to look at. And this is the bulk of your uh, fill-in this morning. So follow me as we fill this in this morning. These are the two promises that God makes to David. First one is this. In verse 9, latter part of verse 9, I will make your name great. I will make your name great. Do you like to name things? Any of you out there? Kids, do you like to name things like stuffed animals or things that, that you have? Is that fun to do? Yeah, there's a couple of hands. You like to name things. My daughter loves naming things. She will go around the house and name everything she can. When she was three, she named her very first thing. We were out in the backyard, and she found a big old uh, thick, slimy worm from the garden. She pulled it out, and she ran to me, and she showed me. She's like, Daddy, look. Look at the worm. I said, Mia, you found it. You get to name it. What do you want to name it? She was puzzled by this concept. She had never been asked to do that before. So she looked at it. She thought about it for a long time. And finally she went, Slover. Okay, it's Slover. And we'll never forget that. that and, and she still, so she'll find worms now, even now, and think it's the same worm. She's like, Slover's back. And I'm like, all right, Slover. So any worm she ever sees from now on is Slover. And we know it's not the same Slover because about 10 minutes after she, her initial naming of Slover, she came back to me and I asked, Mia, where did Slover go? And she had this sly look and she said, in my belly. <laughs> Rest in peace, Slover. That was mom's reaction. <laughs> so we all like to name things. Naming things is fun. And God says, I'm going to make your name great. And in fact, do you know that God has a name for you? God has a name for you that nobody else knows. And you will find out what that name is 
when he returns. Hold on to that thought. We'll get to that a little later. So in the, in the context of making your name great, he has sort of two sub points, two sub things to kind of help tease out what this means that he's going to make his name great. He says this first in verse 10. He says, I will provide a place for you to plant. A land, we've talked about land before and the importance of land and why that was so important to someone, an individual back in that day. So he says, I will provide a place to plant in verse 10. And then in verse 11, I will give rest from your enemies. So I will make your name great. How will I make your name great? I will provide you a place and your people to plant so that nobody will bother them anymore. So that enemies won't come. There will be a place where you can rest, a promised land and I will give you rest from your enemies. And for the rest of the Israelite story, which is really fascinating, when you read the Old Testament, you get to the kings, and you get to the chronicles, and you're like, what is going on? How, you know, just one king after another, and what does this mean? One of the overarching uh, ideas of this, these, this section of scripture is that every time an Israelite king is good and faithful and loves the Lord, Israel takes land and pushes out enemies. And every time it's a wicked king, they lose land and more enemies come upon them. And you see it sort of, it serves as sort of a barometer for the spiritual aptitude of Israel, king after king, generation after generation. Are they taking land or are they losing land? Are they fighting off enemies or are they losing to the enemies? And so there's this barometer, it's a, it's a check. You get to see it over and over, gaining and losing ground, fighting enemies and losing to enemies and winning against enemies. All is a, a kind of overarching sense to give us a sense of how Israel is doing spiritually. Israel loses land and is defeated by enemies when, an enemy king, when a wicked king comes into power and vice versa. So that's the first promise he makes. I will make your name great and I will give you a place to plant and I will give you rest from your enemies. And then he makes a second promise in verse 12, the end of verse 12. He says this, I will raise up your offspring. I will raise up your offspring. And again, we've talked about this lineage thing as well, land and lineage, how these two things are very important. Someone that I can give what I'd worked for to when I die my name would carry on. This was very important. And so just like Abraham, we see, if you should be seeing some of the similarities here between what God promised Abram between land and lineage and here for David. Land, freedom from enemies, and offspring. I will give you offspring. David's great name will allow his offspring to then carry on his kingdom forever. It's all tied in. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you these resources so that your line can carry on from generation to generation to generation until that one comes. And so he says, I'm going to give you offspring. And there are three things sort of sub, again, just like the last one, sort of subcategories, sub-descriptions of what it means and what, what implications are there for his offspring. Number one in verse 13, it says, I will build a house with him. So God said, David, your job is not to set up my house, okay? We're, something big's going on with you. Let's just stay on our lane. We're going to do this. Your next of kin your offspring, he's going to build my house. He's going to build the temple. He's going to build something that I can dwell. Number two, in verse 14, he says, I will punish him. 
like a loving father when he does wrong. I will punish him like a loving father when he does wrong. So your offspring's going to come. He's going to build my temple. He's not going to be great. And I'm going to have to discipline him like a loving father. I will be his father. He will be my son like a loving father. I'm going to have to discipline him. And then number three, but I will establish his kingdom and throne forever. I will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. You will have an offspring. I will raise up an offspring for you. He will build my house. I will punish him when he does wrong. And I will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. And hence concludes the two promises of God. Land and lineage, just like Abram, really just like Moses. I'm carrying this plan through, but the people need to see a better king than Saul was. They need to see a better ruler than the rulers before. And so I'm going to establish my kingdom with you. And nothing will break from there on. You will be my chosen person. What this means is that David's line will not break. God will establish his lineage and carry it through all the way to the Messiah comes. It will not break. Nobody will take it over. There will be no more enemies that will come in and conquer him. That the line would remain. And then we see in in chapter 7 in verses 18 through 29, which is probably another break in your Bible, an oath. And this is David's oath, his commitment, his agreement to the covenant. And so once again, we see God making a covenant, cutting a covenant with one of the central figures in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is that you continue to read them through, these two promises absolutely play out in David's life. First, David's name does become great, fulfilling every aspect of the first promise. In the next chapter, it gives us a long list of territories and enemies that he conquers. God is providing his people more land to plant and fewer enemies to fight. We see this coming through. In fact, in, verse, in chapter 8, in verse 13 and 14, it reads this here on the screen. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David's name becomes famous. God keeps his promise. David is faithful to the Lord, and so his name throughout all of the world becomes famous for what he has done. And the second promise as well, starting in 1 Kings, Dave raises up, David raises up an offspring, Solomon. And Solomon fulfills every aspect of the second promise as well. Solomon builds a house a temple for the Lord. The first part of 1 Kings is all about uh, David passing on his power to Solomon and then Solomon building the temple. Solomon does wrong. He runs after wealth and women and begins worshiping their idols and consequently he is punished as his kingdom is divided. Here's the narrative in 1 Kings uh, that we can read on that. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David and the promise I made to him, 
your father, I will not do it during your lifetime, and I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David to carry that line further, my servant for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. In that little sequence right there, we see that God disciplines Solomon for his evil. He disciplines it, but he doesn't break the promise. The line continues. And so what happens is just sort of a way of narrative to help us get to the rest of the Old Testament is what happens is is that uh, Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, does end up breaking up the kingdom. He's, He's also evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so his kingdom is divided. There's this civil war that breaks out in Israel and the top northern, 10 northern tribes all go away and all become their own nation that they call Israel, which isn't confusing at all. Okay, so you break from Israel and call yourself Israel. Got it. But they believe them to be the real, true Israel. So why should they change their name, right? So they said, we are Israel. We're breaking forth. And this one tribe of of Judah, along with this tiny little tribe of Benjamin, becomes the southern kingdom, what's called Judah. Again, very creative names. They really knew how to think them up. So now you have this divided kingdom, Judah and Israel, because God said, you were not faithful, Solomon. You gave up. You did evil in the eyes of the world. But because of my David, because of my promise I made here back in 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to carry a line through. It's not going to be totally ripped from your hand. You're going to get one tribe, and your family is going to get one tribe. And through the generations, I will continue to be faithful to that one tribe, even if I tear the rest of your kingdom away. And so the northern kingdoms, the ten northern kingdoms go north, and the two, really one and a half southern kingdoms go south. Now, what's also uh, interesting to know, and again, I'm trying to give you some broad strokes of the Old Testament in order to understand the story, but what happens is, is that these northern ten kingdoms, there is unrest and civil war from the moment they break from Israel. In fact, not one of their kings in all of the time follow the Lord. They do evil, every single one of them. And not just that, they usurp the throne probably five or six times in their history. Somebody else comes in, a new family, a new bloodline comes through and kicks the old guys out and starts anew. And so there's, if you look at the line, you'll see usurp after usurp after usurp. Someone who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, evil in the eyes of the Lord, evil in the eyes of the Lord. But Judah, God's promised nation, the one that he establishes his covenant here, 20 straight kings, not one usurp. 20 straight kings, all coming from the father, passing down to the son, passing down to their son, passing down to their son. There's never a break in Judah. And they are significantly more faithful. They're significantly more. Half of their kings follow after the Lord. And so what happens is, is that they go into exile. These ten northern, northern kingdoms, they go into exile. And they're taken into captivity. And then later on, as, as the spiritual aptitude goes down in Judah itself, they also go into captivity. But two, they survive 200 years longer because of their faithfulness to the Lord. And they're put into exile. And uh, kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon take them into exile and make them like them and try to uh, cultivate their ways into their own pagan ways. But eventually a small segment is allowed to go back to Jerusalem and reestablish Israel. This is what Nehemiah is all about. 
Ezra, these guys who are in exile, who have looked at the history and said, we need to reestablish Israel. We need to set things right again. And so they are allowed a small segment to go back to Jerusalem to reestablish Israel. But it is never the same again. It's not like the way it used to be. And so for 400 years they wait. Line after line, they wait. No prophets, no kings, no messiahs. In fact, the page, if you look, the page between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I showed you how thick we've had to go. But this page right here between the New Testament and the Old Testament represents 400 years. Waiting, wondering, when will the prophet come? When will the passer of the pieces come? When will the crusher of snakes come? We have this little conquered, fledgling remnant that's barely hanging on and waiting for someone to come. And then we flip one more page. And if you have your Bibles, flip one more page. In the very first verse in our New Testament, the writings of Matthew say this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, Matthew in the New Testament wanted you to be absolutely sure we knew who this Jesus was, who we're talking about here. In fact, you ever wonder why, why would a New Testament writer, why would a gospel writer want to start with a genealogy? That's not really a great way to hook them, right? You're supposed to like, have it be really, you know, first, the first chapter of a narrative is supposed to be like really exciting to grip them. And he's like, oh, let's go with genealogy. That, that makes sense. But can you imagine the Jewish readers who have been waiting for years to say, let me tell you about this Jesus. Let's start with Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and it goes on and on. And then in verse 6, David. Oh, we know David. We've been reading about David. We've been reading about the promises of David. We, we understand that David was the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, on and on and on until we get to, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And we lose that a little bit because we're not in that culture, we're not in that context. We flip by that really fast to get to the good stuff. But if you've been waiting 400 years in this small remnant of, of conquered Israel, waiting for your prophet, waiting for your Messiah to come, you wouldn't take your eyes off this. You're saying he is the one. The son of David. The son of Abraham. And what's amazing is that the New Testament then begins to reveal that God's promises to David are our promises as well. You see, God promises, I will make your name great. And while David's name was acknowledged among the earth, our name will be acknowledged among the heavens. Read Revelation 2 with me. In Revelation 2, it talks about naming and that God has a name for you. And it says this, to the one who is victorious, 
from your enemies like David, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You have a name in heaven that only God knows, and he can't wait to tell you a name that is famous among the heavens. In fact, look at the, a couple chapters later. It says this in Revelation 4. It says this. Excuse me, Revelation 3. The one who is victorious, again, the one who is victorious will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Your name that is written in heaven will be uttered by Jesus before God and the heavenly celestial angels. Your name will be famous and it will have power. It will be written in the book of life and it will provide you ultimate rest. Your name will be great. And not because of something you've done, not in the sense of you're going to be famous here on earth or, some, or good things are going to happen to you, you're going to be really wealthy or you're going to be really well known. No, you're going to be famous in a realm that we can't even comprehend yet. David's name was famous on earth as a way to show us how all of our names will be famous and will be great to the one who is victorious. I will acknowledge that name before my father. Just like David, we have land to defend, but not plots of dirt and weapons of war, but with the full armor of God in Ephesians, the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. See, we're going to have to defend land too, but it's not physical land and it's not physical, tangible enemies. It's standing our ground with the weapons that God has given us. And just like David, we will have enemies. But in the, chat, in the verse right before, it says this, but our struggle is not against flesh and blood and not against the rulers and against authorities and against powers of dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. David's was, ours is not. As New Testament people, as people of, of the way of Jesus, we have land to stand up and defend against. We have enemies to fight against, but these enemies are not ones we can see necessarily but they're there. So if the amount of land and enemies that a king, the kings of Israel had became the barometer for how you were doing, let me ask you, are you losing ground? Have you made enemies? Your thought life your internet life, spending habits, grudges you keep, time management, control issues. Where is the enemy winning? Where are you losing ground? Because your struggle is not against flesh and blood. God promises you land. He pr promises you freedom from your enemies. But where are you losing that battle? And again, it's not in your own strength whether you win or lose. God has a historical prologue for you that's told you everything he has already done for you to enable you to win this fight, to enable you to be victorious. But where are you not standing your ground? 
So just like David, our name is great, and we defend our land, and we defend our enemies. But also, just like David, God promises that I will raise up an offspring. See, David's offspring was Solomon, but we have a better Solomon, don't we? Where Solomon builds a temple of stone, Jesus built a temple with himself as the cornerstone. In John 2, he tells this story. He's in the temple courts, and a group of religious leaders challenge his claim to be the one they've been waiting for. And so he says this, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years. That's how long it took Solomon to build his temple. And you are going to raise it in three days, but the temple he spoke about was his own body. You see, Solomon built a temple of stone, but Jesus is the cornerstone of his temple. And then the New Testament writers take this idea and say, now just as Jesus is the cornerstone, the body for which he is building this temple, we are living stones getting put into that temple. We get to join that temple. We get to be part of this body that is his temple. And so we look around and we see a kingdom people joining together to worship, to sing, to raise up our children and say, yes, God, you are the one. And we see that we are the temple here and now as a light to the watching world. Where Solomon is punished for what he has done wrong, Jesus is punished for the wrongs of everyone. With a rod, it says in the text, wielded by men and floggings inflicted by human hands. Pilate had, had Jesus flogged here. Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took a staff and they struck him on the head over and over again, again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to be crucified. You see, where Solomon pays for the wrongs he commits, our better Solomon pays for the wrongs of all of us. With a rod wielded by men and floggings at the hand of men. But where Solomon's throne is established through one small tribe of Judah, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth. Jesus' throne will be established forever. You see, Jesus wants to make your name great. Jesus wants to raise you up and establish your name in the heavens to the one who is victorious. He believes in you. He believes you can do it. He has written a whole historical prologue that enables you to do it. But when we fail, and we will, we have a better Solomon. And his kingdom will be established forever. And he will take the wrongs that really are for us. And he will build a temple with himself. This is the power of the Old Testament, is we see how the whole story weaves together. Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. We have a better Solomon. Solomon. 